Hi friends, this is Jeff. Thank you for tuning in to the Unchained Gospel Podcast, where we let the lion out of its cage in order to set the captives free from theirs. title for today's message is A Dwelling Place for God. We're going to be taking a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to dig into your word, for the revelation of it, of your character, of your nature, of your plan for the ages, Lord. I pray that you would clarify my mind and heart and allow me to speak clearly as I speak on this topic. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So, Paul begins this idea of talking about circumcision versus uncircumcision. It's a common theme in the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters. Were the Gentile believers in Jesus required to fulfill the law's requirement of circumcision, just as the Jews uh, had been entrusted with and the covenant with God had been made uh, from the time of Abraham to the present day for Paul? And this was a huge argument, Acts chapter 15. It goes before the elders of the church, and it's because mainly that the Jews had lost the intent of circumcision and what it was intended to be. It was intended to be an outward sign of an inward change. It was a a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and Abraham's descendants. The Jews took great pride in being God's chosen people, but the covenant that God had made with his people was intended to bring about a change of heart. Unfortunately, over time, just like anything else, the act of circumcision became a ritual. It became a religion. It's as if they uh, forgot that God had called them to be his chosen people by his grace. They forgot that it was God who called Abraham, not the other way around. They forgot that God had time and again forgiven them for their rebellion and rescued them from the mess they had gotten themselves into. They had done nothing to deserve God's favor. They were merely the undeserving recipients of amazing blessings outlined in an unconditional covenant. They'd also forgotten that God had called them to be a light to all the nations. He wanted Israel to stand out from the crowd and not engage in the sinful practices and pagan worship that was prevalent in most of the Gentile world. The trouble was that their motivation for being separate in their worship and lifestyle began to shift. Let me say that again. The trouble was that their motivation for being separate in their worship and lifestyle began to shift. Think about it for us. Do we live a separate life as a disciple of Jesus Christ because our motivation is right or because we just want to please people and have outward signs of holiness? The Jews began to identify with the sign of the covenant rather than the God of the covenant. It didn't become about which God do you follow, which God do you serve. It was, are you circumcised? That was it. They focused on the strict adherence to the religious duties outlined within the covenant rather than on the heart change that should have been brought about by the covenant. No longer were they obeying the rules God had outlined for them to follow because of a love and appreciation for him and what he had done, 
but rather it was to further elevate themselves in their own minds. Instead of taking their rightful place as a shining light in the midst of a dark world, they isolated themselves, wanting nothing to do with the wicked Gentile scum of the earth. So much so that referring to someone as uncircumcised was seen as a derogatory term. Jews would thank God every day that they were not born a Gentile. Some Jews went as far as to say that Gentiles only existed in order to provide fuel for the fires of hell. What happened? How did they get so far off track? Could it be possible for us as Christians to allow our motivation for being separate in our lifestyle and worship begin to shift? So much so that we begin to think that we are in some way impressing God with our religious practices. That we have something to bring to the table of God for his careful consideration. Or dare I say, to the extent that we begin to isolate ourselves from the very world to which God has called us to be his light. Let's read on in verse 13. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. You see, just like the Jewish people, we care more about maintaining the appearance of righteousness by our works than receiving God's gift of grace and holding fast to him by faith. You see, even under the old covenant, your religious activity meant nothing if your heart was not right with God. That's not something that Jesus instituted. That's not something that's New Testament. That was always the case. First Samuel fifteen twenty two. If you want to turn there and make a note of it, that's fine. It says, uh, uh, this is the story of when Saul is commanded to kill the Amalekites and not to keep anything. And he decides to bring back some of the spoil. And, and Samuel comes and says, you know, what's going on? What's this, this sound of sheep that I hear? Why do I hear the bleeding of sheep and the neighing, you know, all that stuff? And Saul's like, oh, I, I kept this for the Lord. I'm going to sacrifice it to the Lord. And First Samuel 15, 22 Samuel says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than that the fat of rams. Also, Psalm 51, 16 through 17 says, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Abraham had righteousness accounted to him because of his belief, not by his actions. He obeyed God and lived his life in a way that demonstrated what he first believed. In Deuteronomy 10, after Moses had received the second copy of the Ten Commandments, he said this in verse 12, Deuteronomy 10, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him? to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep his commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. He's saying, all, the only thing God requires for you to do are things that are going to benefit you. It's going to be for your good because God knows that when we love God and we serve the Lord, 
and we give him our lives and we obey his commandments, that we will be blessed. He knows that even if something is, it seems like a, an impediment or something, that, an obstacle or a fence that God is blocking us off from something that we want, we think that God's holding out on us. And that's the lie that we believe from the beginning. But what he's saying is, it's because of these commandments that God has laid out. If you follow them, it's the best your life can be. People talk about, you know, getting your best life now. The way you do that is by following the Lord and loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Can be keeping his commandments. He goes on in Deuteronomy 10 verse 14. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God. Also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. And he chose their descendants after them. You above all peoples as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. See, it had nothing to do with their flesh. It had nothing to do with their anatomy. He says, circumcise your hearts. If you could turn to Acts 7. In Acts 7, we hear the story of Stephen, the first martyr. But what's interesting is in the beginning of Acts, Peter, on Pentecost, when he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he preaches his sermon and basically says, like, you, the Jews, are responsible for Jesus' death. And it says that they were cut to the heart and 3,000 people were saved. The root word there is similar to the root word that's used to describe the soldier piercing Jesus' side when he was on the cross to make sure that he was dead and the blood and water flowed out. What a beautiful picture. It's only when we are cut to the heart that we can receive the cleansing of his blood and the filling of the Holy Spirit. When we allow God's word to dissect us, to, to diagnose the problem and get rid of it. The next time we see the phrase cut to the heart, it's here in Acts 7. When Stephen is addressing the high priest and the Sanhedrin when being accused of blasphemy. And sadly, it comes with a much different result. In verse 48, it says, However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. That's a key point. Remember that. You know, our title is a dwelling place for God. So where does God dwell? As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears? Does that sound familiar? The language we read in Deuteronomy 10. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. This word cut is different. It means to saw in two. What's interesting is that Stephen speaks of the prophets being persecuted. And according to tradition, Isaiah was sawn in two. So the Jews proved Stephen's point. They were so angry by this prophetic word against them that they delivered him to be stoned. Verse 55, it says, But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, 56, and said, Look! I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
That young man named Saul would soon have a miraculous encounter with Jesus Christ. In fact, it was that young man who was now writing this letter, who himself had full understanding of the law and the animosity between Jew and Gentile. It was Paul who could say the following. Philippians 3.3 For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Catch that? The people who are of the circumcision, the idea that God originally intended circumcision to be, are those who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in their flesh. The Jews had complete confidence in the fact that they were circumcised, and that meant that they and God were okay. It was an outward religion. Do we live that way? Do we have an outward religion practice that we maintain, and we think that that means that we're one of God's kids? If anybody could think that it was Paul, verse 4, he goes on in Philippians 3, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me? These I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith. Abraham believed God and it was accounted him as righteousness. That was before He was circumcised. Do you get that? Do you understand the difference? Colossians, which is kind of a parallel to Ephesians, and and this text specifically is similar to what we've just read in Ephesians. Colossians 2, 11 through 14 says, In him, Jesus Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision, circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, So the circumcision that takes place in the life of a believer is putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by ridding your life of that type of behavior. By the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven You all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. God revealed to Paul that his social and spiritual credentials meant nothing at the shadow of the cross. The new covenant instituted by Jesus' death and resurrection made it so that all men can gain access to God through him and him alone. Verse 17, back in Ephesians 2. It says, and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the father. You see, the temple made by hands was no longer necessary. The sacrifices were not needed because Jesus was sacrificed once for all. There was no more need for the priesthood. Jesus became the perfect high priest. He did not need to first atone for his own sins because he was sinless. 
Hebrews 9.11 says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Galatians 6.15 says, It doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. That's the New Living Translation. This idea of the work that is not made with hands, the temple of God that is not made with hands, the tabernacle not made with hands, it can't be that circumcision and religious practice and our works are the way that we receive Jesus. The veil of separation was torn apart in the temple when Jesus died. And now all people can boldly come into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.19 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, and he let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. This idea that Jesus, in his own flesh being torn on the cross, tore the veil that separated us from God. He made a way for us to enter boldly into the presence of God, without religious ritual, But he also tore down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, between the the earthly righteous or the self-righteous and the unrighteous. Verse 19, Ephesians chapter 2. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. God desires that all believers would find their identity in Christ and in him alone. We are no longer to be identified by the choices we make, the work of our hands, or, gasp, by the nation we pledge our allegiance to. We're not American and then Christian. We are Christ's, and we are one with him, along with every other true believer in Jesus. We've now entered into the new covenant and are washed clean, co-heirs with Christ Jesus, seated with Christ in the heavens. All believers in Jesus have access to God without the need for any earthly intercessor. We don't need to go pray to Mary first. We don't need a a priest to intercede for us. We have direct access to the Father through Jesus Christ. But how would God set up his presence here on earth? If you remember, all throughout biblical history, the presence of God dwelt in the tabernacle or the temple, but now the temple had been rendered obsolete. The Bible says that God will not dwell in a house made with hands. The scriptures are very clear about this. In Acts 17, 24, it says, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Okay, so if God is not going to dwell in a physical temple, then where will he dwell? We kind of already know the answer to this, but it's cool to see things work out and build up. So let's take a look. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Listen to this. 
when Jesus was being accused of blasphemy during his mock trial, do you know one of the accusation, accusations which were hurled against him? Mark 14, 58. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Wait a minute. Did you hear that? Where have we heard that before? What temple is Jesus referring to? Jesus never actually said made with hands, made without hands. He didn't make that distinction. But it's, it's very plausible because this is something he said in, in several Gospels, talking about destroying the tam- temple and raising it up. John 2.19, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? This verse. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Did you get that, church? The temple of God is the body of Christ. And who is the body of Christ? The church. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? John 14.23 Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, He will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. It's powerful. Ephesians 2, pick up in verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. As humans, we have a tendency to build ourselves on our own reputation or our own accomplishments. Our society thrives on building a name for oneself without the help of anything or anyone. For the believer, it is no longer about trusting in the works of our own hands, but rather the works of Christ's eternally nail-pierced hands. Do you get that? It's no longer about trusting in the works of our own hands, but rather the works of Christ's eternally nail-pierced hands. For anyone who considers themselves religious, know that God is not impressed by the works you do for him. He is concerned with whether we allow him to do his work through us. Being a disciple of Christ, a child of God, has nothing to do with outward appearance, simply doing good works to maintain a good reputation or status. It has everything to do with whether we allow God to take up resonance in our hearts by his spirit. When Jesus died on the cross, he not only reconciled the world to himself, like it says in 2 Corinthians 5, but he also accomplished the total destruction of all racial prejudice, bias, and injustice between Jew and Gentile. He completely abolished any type of works-based method of religion. The trouble was, the Jews were having trouble associating with the new Gentile believers and were not happy with the fact that they were not keeping the law and following the ordinances as the Jews had all their life. Many Jews were trying to convince the Gentile believers that they needed to be circumcised in order to be real Christians. It was becoming a Jesus and Judaism mentality. That's what the book of Galatians is all about. Paul was constantly fighting against the Judaizers for this very reason. Galatians 3.3 Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? In Jesus Christ, we are no longer judged according to the law. 
Galatians 3, 5 and 6. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. As a church, if we want God to take up residence in our gatherings, then we then there needs to be a complete surrender of all man-made self-seeking agenda. We cannot move forward without yielding to the Spirit of God individually and corporately. Now, how do we do that? How is that accomplished? Jesus Christ must have his rightful place as the chief cornerstone in the life of every believer and in the assembly of his people. In order for us to understand the spiritual truth, we need to first understand what a cornerstone is. The cornerstone, according to Wikipedia, (laughs) the cornerstone or foundation stone concept is derived from the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. Important since all other stones will be set in reference to this stone, thus determining the position of the entire structure. If Jesus Christ is not first in our lives, then we will not grow into a healthy and holy temple. If as a church we are not in agreement on the centrality of Christ, then we are unfit for God to meet us by his spirit in our worship. 1 Corinthians 3 verses 10 through 11 says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The trouble is, there is an internal unraveling that happens when Christ is not paramount. If we are not founded on the rock and built up by a spirit, then we will falter when the attacks come. And they will come. Attacks from within and without the church walls. We see it today. When dissensions arise, more often than not, they are not the result of a people pursuing their own best interests. They are. More often than not, they are the result of people pursuing their own best interests rather than what's best for the whole body. It's like a tree that's been attacked with rot and termites from within. Even when the damage is not evident on the outside, all it takes is a strong wind for the entire tree to be uprooted. If Jesus is not our foundation, then we can easily be blown about by every wind of doctrine that passes through the church. Matthew sixteen eighteen, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. When we discuss church building and growth, it's usually in regards to attendance. But I'm not talking about a growth in numbers. I'm talking about growing into a dwelling place for God. Most churches move away from the foundational truth of Jesus Christ in order to fill the seats on Sundays. That type of growth is not lasting and ultimately does more harm than good to the body of Christ. The type of growth that God is interested in comes from digging deep and laying a good foundation of doctrine with Jesus being the cornerstone. But a lot of people would rather teach a shallow gospel because it's more accessible and pleasing to the ears. The number of people that say they're Christians is vast. But how many congregations are a mile wide and only an inch deep? The result is many congregations that are leaning too far to the left into liberalism or too far right, legalism. Just as Christ made peace between God and man, he's also able to bring peace between all people. But only when we see past the minor differences between denominations and place our foundation on Christ rather than the traditions of men. It is then 
that we are able to experience the true presence of God in our assembly because we are founded on his son. A couple verses for you to close. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. Coming to him, Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The final verse is this, Revelation 21.3. If we want to know where God wants to set up his dwelling place, here it is. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this truth. Thank you that you desire to come and dwell with your people. That's what the whole story was about. In Genesis, you walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, and the sin separated us. But Lord, you conquered sin and took away the dividing wall. The wall between man and God, the wall between Jew and Gentile, the wall between male and female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And when we are one and we have unity, that is when you come and meet us. And your presence is felt, and we are transformed. It's not by our own works. It's by faith, Lord. Thank you for the gift, the gift of grace, so that we could have faith to believe in Jesus. We praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.